Welcome to the Golden Age of Baseball with Eddie Robinson, baseball's oldest living player. Eddie was a four-time All-Star, World Series winner, scout, and front office executive during his amazing 65-year career in baseball. These podcasts will give the baseball enthusiasts the opportunity to share a slice of baseball history with someone who actually lived it. And now, here's Eddie. I spent the rest of the winter in Baltimore running the restaurant, uh, getting to know my customers, uh, getting to know a little bit about running a restaurant. It's uh, it's fun, but it requires a lot of hours. I spent a lot of hours there visiting with my customers. Most of them were sports fans, and my, stay, my restaurant being located about a mile from the Stadium helped. As soon as I bought it, uh, a lot of sports figures came in to visit, and uh, and they they continued to come and eat there, which I appreciated very much. It was close to Eddie Rommel. Remember, I told you about the pitcher that pitched for Connie Mack, and uh, his knuckleball pitcher. He pitched a a double header one day, two nine inning games. He pitched. I think he won them both. And, of course, he used his knuckleball. As I've told you many times, it's a, it's a damned hard pitch to hit and very unusual. Hard to throw, hard to learn how to control it. But uh, Eddie had a, a duck pin bowling alley. Now, you probably picture bowling alleys as having the, the big tall pins and the big ball with the with the holes in it to put your fingers. Well, a duck pen bowling alley has more pens. I think it has 12 pens. And you roll a ball that you hold in your hand, and uh, you, you, you get to throw re- three balls. Instead of throwing two uh, in a duck pen, you throw three. Well, that's the kind of alley uh, Eddie Rommel had. He used to come in to eat, and we'd have a visit and talk baseball. Uh, he was a fun guy, uh, and when, even when he became an umpire after he, after he pitched, uh, he was a fun guy to have around. The winter of forty nine fifty was uneventful, except that uh, I, I bought the restaurant, and uh, I didn't know how eventful the nineteen fifty, the fifty one season uh, was was going to be. It, it was quite a year. Uh, first of all, Frank Lane had become the, he, he was already the general manager, but he changed managers, and he hired a guy named Paul Richards. I think Paul had been managing Atlanta in the Southern League, and, and a lot of us had heard about him, uh, how he had been a very good catcher with the Detroit Tigers. He wasn't the regular catcher. But he had helped, uh, he had caught enough, and he always caught Hal Newhouser, and he helped Hal Newhouser uh, become a, a, one of the outstanding pitchers in the league. Well, he was going to be the manager, and we were all, I was looking forward to seeing what he was like and getting to know him. So we did. Uh, the, the, the winter was over, and uh, 51 season, was uh, 
on the verge of getting started, we all reported to spring training in Pasadena, California. Paul greeted us, and and we had several just just sit down meetings with him, and he talked to us, and 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 just by listening to him and and hearing him talk and his ideas, just made a lot of sense. And one thing that really came across strong was he knew what the hell he was doing. He 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 understood baseball, and he had uh, managed several years in minor leagues, and he knew what he was doing in in managing our club, and and that's a big thing as I've said before, is for a ball player to have belief in his manager, to to really believe that what he was telling him, what the manager was telling the player, he could rely on, and that the manager was right. That is very big in baseball. So we went into spring training, had so many drills and meetings, and and things went well. We we had not too different a ball club from what we'd had the year before. Elaine didn't make too many deals during the winter time, so we had some pitchers there. Was I guess they had promised. Uh, the year before, but the manager didn't get it out of him, but Richards did. And he began to work with the pitchers, and they began to pitch better. And and we uh, had so many drills on how to run the bases and how to field uh, on the infield and situations that come up. And it was, it, it was all very good. We had a good spring. We won quite a few games and really enjoyed it. We went through spring training, and as I say, had a good spring, and worked our way back to Chicago. And uh, we've had a doubleheader with the Cubs, which I've told you about before, it was so cold. And we played the game anyway. It was, a, uh, I didn't think Richard would make me play both games, but he sure did. It was spitting snow. It was so cold, but they must have had a good advanced sale for the crowd because they, they asked us to play the doubleheader, and we played it. And we went into the season and started off pretty good. But one of the th- things that happened early in the season was this uh, girl who called me up. Uh, I had chosen a roommate, Chuck Stobbs. Uh, Chuck had been with the Red Sox organization, and Lane had made some kind of deal for him. And he was a nice young man and single. And I asked him if he'd like to get an apartment with me, and he said, yeah. So uh, we got an apartment in the Tudor Arms Hotel in, in South Chicago, so we wouldn't be so far from the ballpark. Well, our apartment was very close to Chicago University. It was a good neighborhood, and uh, we were our trunks had just been delivered, and we were unpacking our trunks, and the phone rang, and this girl was on the line to talk to me. Uh, she said her name was Petey, P-E-T-E, and I said, well, how did you get my phone number? She said the company that delivered your trunk to you gave me the number, and she proceeded to tell me that that she had watched me the year before, and she really liked me, and that she had decided 
that she would like to marry me. And uh, she said she lived in a big house. She had a room set aside for me. That She had a rocking chair in there, and, and she knew that I knew how to hunt, uh, that I loved to hunt, and she had bought a shotgun for me, of all things. And uh, that she had really fixed the room up in, in preparation for she and I to get married. And I'd never seen this girl. Apparently, she had been watching me at the ballpark. I had never laid eyes on her. And I'm not sure that I have ever laid eyes on her to this day. Anyway, she carried on a long, kind of crazy conversation with me and uh, hung up. And Chuck and I finished unpacking and then went to the ballpark and played a ball game. Petey started writing me letters after that phone call. And she had written two and three pages typewritten. Now, that's a lot of lot of typewriting and a long letter. And uh, she just ramble on about all kind of things. And uh, one day she told me, she said, uh, I cut you, I got a big picture of you and I cut it out and I took it to my church Turns out she was a Greek descendant, and she went to the Greek church. She said, I put your saint behind my saint's picture in the church. And that sounded so crazy to me, but I guess she did. But she she just kept on writing those letters. And I began to think more and more about Eddie Wade, because he had gotten shot by, by that gal that he didn't know. And and this Petey was writing me. She had already told me she bought a shotgun for me. So uh, I was a little apprehensive there and kept and kept an eye out for her uh, all season. And late in the season, the the closest thing I can relate to with Petey is I was looking. I was playing first base, looking to Warren home plate. And just beyond home plate, in the box seats, in the front row of the box seats, was this girl. And she was sitting in the front row with her arms resting on the railing, and her chin was on her arms. And she was looking directly at me. She wasn't looking at the pitcher when he threw the ball. She was looking at me. And I thought to myself, that could be Petey. She stayed there about five innings, and then she disappeared, and I never saw her anymore. I really don't know if that was Petey or not, but uh, it, uh, it's, it, it was the closest thing I had seen to what I thought might be Petey. Her letters would uh, let up in the wintertime. She didn't write me much, but she wrote me a letter in 1952 that uh, she said that uh, it, it, she, she believed in flying saucers. And she said, uh, You're, you've been one of the chosen few to be taken up on a flying saucer. And they're going to contact you 
and you and Ted Williams. He's been selected, and the two of you are going up on a flying saucer. And then she sent me a book, and the book was entitled Flying Saucers Have Landed. Well, I never read the book. I'll tell you more about it, though, a little bit, a little bit later. But uh, that was Petey, and she, she was quite a gal. Thank you for listening to the Golden Age of Baseball with baseball legend Eddie Robinson. If you have a question for Eddie or would like to suggest a topic for him to discuss, please email eddie.robinson65 at yahoo.com. And for an even deeper dive into the golden age of baseball, read his autobiography, Lucky Me, My 65 Years in Baseball, which you can find on goodreads.com and on Amazon. The executive producer of the golden age of baseball is Greg Ricks. Our engineer is Mark Robinson, and our podcast coordinator is Abby Robinson. (laughs) 